0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: I think the stories of the last week have proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt. What is possible when you invest in good journalism and beyond just the big institutions that get a lot of attention? There's a lot going on in this town.
0: Carrie Budoff-Brown has been with Politico since its beginning. Now she's back in D.C. after helping to run Politico Europe. We talk about that and more. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. So welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Yeah, thank uh, you,
1: Michael. It's great to be here.
0: I'm glad you came across the river and uh, joined us here in the studios. Now, how long have you been the editor at Politico? Uh, I've Just been the editor year, since, the, right? no,
1: since November of uh, last year, right after uh, the election. I took over about a week afterwards.
0: Oh, okay. When yeah. The, the other guy got out when the getting was good. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was a woman.
0: Oh, Susan I'm Glasser. Sorry. That's all right. I was right. using that in no, a in know, neutral no. sense. It's all right. A... Yeah.
1: No, yeah. Susan uh, Susan Glasser uh, left on a Friday after the election, and I took over, I guess, that night, yeah. given how newsy it was back then. That was
0: planned. That was, that just was like, totally I'm plan- leaving. No, it yeah, was. Yeah.
1: It was wild. It was a wild turnover, you know, at that time.
0: But you've been at Politico since the beginning in some yes. some role or other.
1: Yes. I, I came to Politico when it launched in 2007 as a reporter. I. Came here from the Philadelphia Inquirer and was covering politics in Pennsylvania and just heard, read about Politico starting. I did not know the founders at the time. And I decided at that moment that it would be riskier to stay at the Philadelphia Inquirer than it would be to go to a startup. That's how concerned I was at that time about the health of the Inquirer and of like regional journalism at that point, regional newspapers. I really had started to see how much it was changing, because I did a blog at the end of 2006 and saw how people were so responsive to it and how how we were not prepared as an organization. the Inquirer, to respond to that. And it really sort of opened my eyes. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go try this new thing. And 11 years later, here I am.
0: You said you started a blog. What was it about Politico that, that you said this would be a good place to go?
1: Well, you know, it was the fact that it was going to be digital first and at that time in 2007. That was a unique concept. You know, obviously now it's very normal. And I think at the time I also recognized that the pace of journalism was speeding up and not many places were poised to capture that. And Politica was built on that notion that the way Washington was covered, it needed to be updated and faster. And that really appealed to me at that time As a younger journalist, I was maybe 29 or 30 and just thought, you know, these are people who I've read, Jim VandeHei, John Harris, Mike Allen, Roger Simon. These are people whose bylines I sort of, you know, grew up reading to a certain extent, even though they're not that much older than me. But, you know, I just I respected them. I thought, you know what, like, let me try my hand at this and came down from Philadelphia to cover the Senate and then moved on to the. 2008 campaign at the end of 2007.
0: Yeah. And then you went in and covered the White House. Yep.
1: Yep. I covered Obama for a year before uh, leading up to the election and then went in to cover the White House, but did it in a slightly in a different twist. I I decided to cover it from the Hill since he was pushing so many big legislative items. I was focusing on domestic policy and I decided, you know, I'm just going to plant myself on the Hill and cover it from that perspective. And because I didn't want to cover the White House in the sort of like sit in the briefing room kind of way. I just got out of that sort of bubble environment after covering the presidential campaign for a year, you know, living on a plane pretty much with the same group of people that went into the White House. And in retrospect, like I think they're, you know, <laughs> they're lovely people. But at that point, I was like, I can't stand the idea of just sort of sitting in a briefing room, you know, doing that kind of job. And, and it was a good choice because I latched on to healthcare. care. Followed the ins and outs of that for a year. And it was totally fun. And there was a start and a finish to it, you know, in in Washington. It's so hard to get that these days. You know, someone launches an initiative and then there's a bill signed into law. And so that was actually a very sort of very cool experience. Difficult, hard. Uh, I look back on coverage now and wondering, you know, what did we get right? What did we miss? You know, I think by and large, the media did do well at it. But I see these stories now and I see how much is repeating itself from just sort of the things I saw, like decisions made by lawmakers and by the president, the former president at that time, how much those decisions have continued to reverberate.
0: And certainly the healthcare care story yeah. has mm-hmm. been alive very much so in the last year or so. What has Politico yeah. been doing about yeah. that, do you think?
1: This is a core competency of ours, you know, I mean, I think starting back from when I covered, started covering healthcare, Chris Freitz. We started a morning newsletter called Politico Pulse, which was the first policy newsletter we started. And that grew into Politico Pro, which is a huge subscription service we have. And there's 20 plus newsletters now that were built out of that. So the fact that we sort of started on healthcare, we have this very big team of 14 healthcare reporters, not only in Washington, but around the country. And so I found that we were uniquely positioned to continually cover this story. And in in the last year, it was one of sort of the biggest, you know, points of pride I have in that you have this amazingly talented healthcare team that works very well with our White House reporters who work very well with our Hill reporters. And having that sort of cohesion and collaboration in the newsroom, I think we're so much better forward. And that's been a big thing I've emphasized. But because we have this sort of big healthcare presence. I think that we, we've been uniquely positioned to cover the policy part of it, the legislative story, the executive, you know, and how the administration fits into it.
0: So how do you think in, in comparison, I mean, you know, I don't want you to, to say, mm-hmm. that oh, we're so much better. Mm-hmm. How do you think uh, the coverage of healthcare has been over the last mm-hmm. couple of years? Do you think it's been up to where it should mm-hmm. be yeah. in general?
1: I mean, I think if there's been any disconnect, I feel like it's it's such a it is a topic that, for me, I had to learn right when I was covering. It. Like, I never actually read healthcare stories before I started covering it. You know, eight years ago, it's difficult to get into. It's hard to make accessible. It is like a soap opera, right? And so, for people, for the casual reader to just sort of clue into it, it can be difficult. I think that so much has been written about Obamacare and efforts to repeal it. I don't think there's been like a lack of information. I just think, I, I know, I know there's there are some who, I think disagree with that. And in the right after the bill passed, a lot of criticism from some corners that like, you know, people didn't know what was in the bill. And I mean, I just I don't agree with that. Like, I think maybe some lawmakers didn't choose to read it. But I think a lot of effort was spent by not only, you know, news organizations like mine and and big mainstream organizations, but Kaiser Health News and and many other smaller industry publications to explain what what that bill is. It's just so complex that it's hard to fully understand anything, and there's always, you know, there's always things to criticize.
0: I think one of the nice things about what uh, organizations like yours and other newsrooms like mm-hmm. uh, like like Vox, where they, mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of built, or courts, where they're built on this idea of we're going to provide context to bigger stories, mm-hmm. that, you know, setting up these teams, setting up these newsletters that are around big issues and yeah. just owning them. Yep. I think that does a lot. It's great journalism, great service to your readers, but it also... You know, I think it, it demonstrates a lot of the strength of digital mm-hmm. journalism.
1: Absolutely. There's so many opportunities to tell stories and ways to tell stories. It's like incumbent upon organizations like mine to always be thinking about how we can do things differently and what is the best way to tell a story. It's not always going to be a 400 word or 800 word or, you know, 2000 word story. It's going to be visuals. And it's like on us to make this accessible for people. But we also, our audience is also a little bit different than like Fox's audience and, and the Washington Post audience. It's a sort of we have a core of influencers and insiders who the point of Politico is that you have to wake up reading us, you have to be clicking on us all day long, you have to read our midday briefing, you have to go to bed with us. I mean, like that is the people who are in the know they have to feel like this is an indispensable. It's
0: the, the obsessives out there, yeah. on these stories and everything. <laughs> yeah. Those are the people you're serving, and that can be a yeah. challenge for you know a newsroom for a reporter doing that, be, having to be that in touch with mm-hmm. the story 24 hours a day, yes. being able to to update online and, mm-hmm. and through social media. But that's just our jobs.
1: It is, but I but I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that even though the newsroom is meant to be operational and updating between the hours of like 5 a.m. and like 1 a.m. that like it's not we we have to make sure we staff it properly. So, you know, people have balance in their lives and we try to achieve that. We don't always succeed. But that's certainly a mantra of mine.
0: Addressing something like burnout. Just... Yeah,
1: absolutely. Burnout is a huge thing. And in burnout. I mean, I just think it's easy to burn out with social media being as omnipresent as it is in my mind, like in my day, everyone's day, my husband's day, like he's not a, you know, a, a written, he's a photographer, but like we are all consuming so much information. And I mean, particularly journalists who it's part of their job that, you know, burnout is a huge, is a huge concern.
0: Yeah. Because uh, even though, you know, you have a, you have your eight, your 10 hours that you've got to be on your game, <laughs> mm-hmm. things happen. Other people are other places and they're reporting on things that are going to impact your story. So yep. Not only you have to do your own reporting and your writing, but then on top of that, you you have to you know make sure that you're on task to the story. Yep, the bigger exactly. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass sometimes. Yeah, I
1: know it is. <laughs> it is.
0: So after your stint at the White House, you yeah. helped to launch Politico Europe. Yeah, tell me about that. What what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, no, that was it was one of the best ex- like experiences I've ever had, and I think it's because uh, you know and in the end of 2014, early 2015, Politico decided that we were going to team up with a, a German publisher, Axel Springer. Huge, huge presence in Europe. We uh, looked at Brussels and Europe, uh, you know, the power centers in Europe, and thought that it was not being covered the way it could be. That, in fact, Brussels is is very interesting. It's a huge, one of the most powerful regulatory capitals in the world right now, determining the fate of many American businesses, Huge bureaucracy, lots of money spent, lots of politics. And those are all the ingredients that made Politico work here to begin with. And so we decided to launch uh, Try This All Again in in Europe. And we launched the Politico operation in in Brussels, based in Brussels, with people in Paris, London, Berlin, Frankfurt uh, in early 2015. And it's grown to a newsroom of 75 to 100 people now probably 75, I think, across across the continent, not just Americans, Brits, and Australians, as many publications tend to do in Europe. We attracted a newsroom of people who are from, I don't think, nearly every EU country, but quite a few. That was our sort of distinctive strength, that we were pulling Europeans to report on Europe in a way that Washington has reported on looking at the the personalities that drive the policies, influences that come into play, accountability stories, and not looking at it through a national perspective. A lot of the media coverage in Europe is French reporters go to Brussels to report on how the EU is stealing money from France or London, you know. And, and it's sort of written through either a nationalist perspective or a political sort of lens. That's the way media, a lot of media is in Europe. And we were going there with an American-style journalism in that We are nonpartisan. We're not on any sides, whether it's nationality or country. I'm sorry, nationality or party. And we're going to report on this aggressively, in an accessible way, personality-driven, and help people understand what is going on there. And it was a a risk. A lot of people said, like, it just won't work. People have tried this before. And to me, what was the first indicator to me that this really wasn't going to be successful, which beyond just we were breaking stories, getting buzz getting advertisers, we launched our subscription service there, similar to here, focus on healthcare, healthcare, energy, financial services, agriculture, trade, and a year into those subscription services being there, that's when we figure out really whether these are viable. We're asking for thousands of dollars for these subscription services, and we decide the health of something by how many subscribers decide to re-up after a year, and it was well above 90%. So in a market like Europe, where people didn't think they would ever pay for this, they were paying for it at higher rates than, you know, we had seen, you know, that we ever expected. So that, to me, was the sign that this is going to work and that this is something I'm very proud of. Playbook, we, you know, we have a playbook there that has nearly 100,000 subscribers now as well. People saying, I didn't even realize what I didn't have until I had it. You know, I, I didn't realize what I was missing I didn't think I'd wake up and want to read a, read a newsletter. And so that's creating that habit there has been. I was there for a year and a half until I was asked to come back here to be the editor. But I just think the opportunity that I had to sort of try Politico again in another place and actually my our theory of the case turned out to be correct was sort of enor- enormously gratifying. You know, that that's not even getting to the fact that, like, it was wonderful to live in, in Brussels for a year and a half at one of the newsiest stretches from... And when I, when I got there, it was the migrant crisis sort of started where you had all these people coming through Greece and Italy, which was a huge sort of huge story on the continent. And then you had the Greek debt crisis. Then you had the terrorist attack in Paris, which then migrated overnight to Brussels because all the terrorists were based in Brussels, like a mile from my house. Brussels immediately became the focus. And then we had the Brussels terror attack. And then we had Brexit. That was the, the sort of bookends of my time there. And then I came back here and we had this wild election. So it's just been a, you know, nonstop, but, you know, just an incredibly newsy time.
0: <laughs> yeah. to, say, to, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Before, we, before we start talking about what you, your, your move mm-hmm. here, I'm really curious about, you know, I, I like the idea that you looked at, you know, here's a market that has a lot of the same indicators mm-hmm. that we had that that led to our success here in the U.S., why don't we try to do that there? I think that mm-hmm. was certainly, I don't want to say it's brave. It's a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's a, its an interesting, you know, be able to take that gamble. But I'm sure it was, a, you know, a, a, a calculated is, yep. gamble. Mm-hmm. The, it, absolutely. And then see, beginning to see success on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also helped, you know, you you were in there during a, a newsy time yeah, it did, yep. as, as well. Would you say that the... Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question. Is is the was the voice of political Europe very different, or is it because you had the, the sort of American philosophy mm-hmm. of the way you were going to cover the news? Are you still telling the news in sort of the same way?
1: It's a mix. Like there, and it was something that we had to learn and adjust over time. One thing we didn't use uh, British spellings, which is a big thing in Europe. The fact that we didn't use British spellings of in our pages. I was the one who came over, went over to Brussels, who was native to Politico. And then we. Are, I was actually the managing editor. And the editor they hired was from the Wall Street Journal. But he worked in Brussels and on the continent and in foreign policy for much longer than I had. I was not sort of a foreign policy person. So I brought sort of the Politico DNA. And then he brought the European perspective and understanding of the story. And then it was a melding of the two. I mean, there were times where, you know, what I would do as an American journalist, I knew it was probably not appropriate for there. And then there were other times where I realized, no, this is a time where it is the right thing to do is to cover it in an American style way, which is just straight cut to the chase. Tell me about the people involved. Don't dwell on, you know, the jargon. And and that was not normal necessarily. That was very abnormal for a lot of the journalism in Brussels in particular. So It was pushing some boundaries, but recognizing when we went too far and even just how we ran the newsroom, I had to sort of meld, you know, on one, one side is sort of an American style metabolism. And then there's like a European style metabolism, which is that, you know, in Europe, you know, it was not normal to be like, you know, I'm going to email you at eight, nine at night and expect you to answer. You know, there's a bit of that, like, but I had to sort of marry the two of them and not be quite a, too American. And of course we had to not be too European in sort of the the expectations of how to run like a modern media company. And so there was a lot of adjustments about as that process went, went on. And I, which I thought was just sort of fun and fascinating in a way to to try to do that. And I think given that we created it almost from scratch, we were able to to attract journalists who sort of got that, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like I was pulling folks along either. Like these were journalists who, just as I was 10 years ago, looking for something different. And we had this wonderful, you know, environment where we created, you know, this, this mini EU that uh, was trying to push the bounds of journalism there. And so it was just very special.
0: So in Europe is you know where where are they at in the, in, the, in sort mm-hmm. of digital journalism no, are, are they so far behind where so we are what, what areas are they are they trailing you think
1: in almost every way you know they're probably like ten years five to ten years behind us I haven't been there for a year so I'm speaking from my experience a year ago it's just you know there there's not this sense that. I mean, there's not many digital outlets, like digital first outlets. And particularly what was interesting in in London, recruiting in London was very difficult because newspapers are still very, very powerful there. And even young people sort of view their career path as ending up at one of the big papers because there haven't been many digital alternatives. Now, in the last few years, you have HuffPost with a bigger presence. You have BuzzFeed with a bigger presence. There's some... Uh and personality-driven small websites, a la drudge there. That part of that, they just had sort of their first morning newsletter, I think in 2016 coming out of Westminster. And then we just launched Playbook there. It was actually hard to recruit younger people to take a risk in their minds and leave that career path that led to, you know, the Daily Telegraph or the FT or, you know, any of the big papers there, The Sun or whatever and get them to be like, no, there's actually this career path that's like digital first. And and so it was always, it, was, it took a while for us to sort of get that foothold, particularly in the London market. I think in Brussels is a little different. Paris is a very insular sort of media environment too, where there's a language barrier there where they read in French. Germany has been, you know, also to get the influencers to read us in Germany has, you know, we've had to sort of experiment with that too. So so it is different, like, and I, th- I think maybe the success of Politico, the success of BuzzFeed, there, some other ventures, like, is is showing that there's this other path in Europe for journalism other than just the traditional big newspapers that aren't doing well. Like the news newspapers there aren't, you know, they're suffering with uh, and struggling with the same questions that face, you know, big legacy media publications here, or even you know Politico. Like environments change, advertising environment is is volatile, and I think places like Politico. are Better easily able to weather that because we don't have a lot of the big, you know, sort of legacy burdens. But it is different. And this isn't
0: necessarily meant as any sort of criticism of yeah. journalism. The yeah. journalism they be doing. It's more about about the way they're using digital journalism. Whether the, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're doing newsletters, whether they're whether they're even blogging. Yeah. Um, is there much broadband? I mean, is it comparable That's to what's. Question. Because yeah, I, I mean, know other places, yeah. other places around the world, we've had guests and we talked about. I know we we talked about some people in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, and that was one of the things they said there wasn't as much broadband, which no, that, you know people. Yeah,
1: people, no, that's right. They're, they're, like obviously in countries like Germany and and you know Belgium and 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 England, the UK, it's a little different than like Italy and Portugal, where it's widely known that like they don't have as much internet access as they should, like high speed internet access. Mm-hmm. I think we have challenges in in places like Italy and Portugal for other reasons, the language being the primary hurdle to sort of a a big, large scale readership. But yeah, I mean, I think that that is that is an issue. It's just different. It's that we're one country here. Obviously, we have different different access to to the Internet and here, just like they do in Europe it's an interesting question. It
0: is an interesting question because I asked it. <laughs>
1: uh, so, so you're back in America. Uh-huh. You're back at Politico.
0: You're the editor. You're uh-huh. running the show. You left interesting times in Europe. Mm-hmm. You're, in, you're in interesting times back in D.C., back in covering mm-hmm. U.S. politics. So what? <laughs> what's your thoughts? What are your impressions yeah. coming back and, and seeing how things have changed from when you were covering Capitol Hill in the White House?
1: yeah the one thing that struck me when I came back was was how much social media had sort of penetrated what reporters do every day like Twitter. I was really shocked at uh, how uh, opinionated a lot of journalists were on Twitter last year um and leading into this year like i've I've said this to my newsroom before I I really wondered where sort of like our idea that we don't share opinions like when where did that change and i sort of felt like i came back to america and like there was just this like wildly just journalists sharing opinions everywhere on twitter and i and it was sort of very jarring for me coming back after being gone for most of the you know the 2016 presidential campaign i was gone for most of it Uh, entirely you're like tom
0: hanks coming back from castaway it was a
1: little bit like that i was like wow when did this happen so that was a little bit jarring to me just from a journalism perspective. And so I've sort of spent a lot of time working on that. Like, I feel like, you know, we're journalists, we're at a time where we're under scrutiny. Our credibility has been called into question at the highest levels of power in this country. And we have an obligation as journalists to, you know, not take sides. We need to use facts and we need to do analysis. but We need to have that based on facts and, and rooted in reporting. And we call balls and strikes, but we do it based in something. And so that was just that was sort of that was a surprise to me coming back after being out of the country for for a year and a
0: half. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, being in the country uh, (laughs) during that, I I couldn't point to you at what point Mm -hmm. that that sort of happened. Mm -hmm. It it was, I think, a gradual as the campaign sort of unraveled Mm -hmm. and as people were covering it and it just there was this general... Shift, and and it's strange because in the end it comes back to shooting us in the foot. That when we we are questioned, when our ethics are questioned, whether you know your opinion, you're opinionated, you're writing from a particular way. Take a look at these tweets that you're sending out or or retweeting. Uh That that brings everything that you're doing into suspect. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but at the same time, you know, I've talked to people since the election who have kind of changed the way they're doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think we, we do. Begin I think we to, all have
1: changed the way we're doing things at the same time. Like we can't, we are not doing things necessarily where we used to do them either.
0: No, but since the election, I think I've been seeing that people are, I think as people, there's, it comes a greater understanding about, you know, the importance of transparency and what our role is in, in reporting this story and, you know, how important maintaining our ethical standards are. So that when we do say something, so that we can regain that trust, that's super important. Mm-hmm. And the way we do that is just doing our job the way we're supposed to be doing it.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's always, I always come back to that. Like, how do you, how, like, ask this all the time. Like, how are you responding in this time? And I just, I think it means just doing your job and doing your job as you learned it, you know, which is that even though the rules feel different right now and, and things are sort of disorienting in, in a lot of ways, that the normal rules of journalism still apply. You know, you don't. If you write a story, you contact all the people you write about. You for and you you try to engage with them. You make sure that if you use anonymous sources, that they they're as airtight as they can be. And you know, if you're it's out of the White House, that they don't rese- represent all. You know, there's factions in the White House. You got to make sure that you cover the gamut, like in your reporting, like that you have to be as air. You know, as Error-free as possible. And nothing is different about this time and how we do our jobs because we just have to do our jobs the way we learn to do them. And and I think sometimes in an environment where like social media is present and you see people saying things on social media and you take that or you see other people retweeting stuff, don't take that. Like that may not be true. Like You have to do the legwork. You have to pick up the phone. You have to go and show your face at places. You have to go do the hard work of journalism. And that's it. You know, and usually that's enough to maintain our credibility, to be honest. You yeah. know, like that's enough to make sure that we get by without effing up. Yes. In my view.
0: And, no, I yeah. I I agree. Mm-hmm. You could have you could have said fuck. That yeah. would have been fine. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. No. See, yeah. did you hear what the editor of yeah. uh, Politico said? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about about the newsroom. You know, before your before our interview, I you know, I was checking out uh-huh. some things on, on Politico, about Politico. One of the things I noticed is that um, more than fifty percent of the staff uh-huh. are female. Yes, and was it's that 50-50, 50-50 yeah. So, in the uh, company, in the company. Yes. Okay. So, was that a conscious effort? Was that, you know, or was there yeah. a quote unquote effort? I yeah. mean, this no. is just what happened.
1: Definitely, I don't think there was any conscious effort. But I think I can say that clearly, there was no conscious effort. I think what's interesting about it is that in the early years of Politico, it was it was characterized as a boys' club in the very early years. And I think that's just because it was like any tech startup where things are moving fast and whatever. And we had sort of this rap for a couple of years. And I think that's stuck to the point where it's just so verifiably false though now, because literally, as I pointed out in a tweet, I think you're referring to a tweet. There was an item written in the Washingtonian which said that I, quote, surprisingly thrive in a newsroom that continues to be a boys club, which like could not be further from the truth at this point. Not only was my predecessor a woman, literally half of the senior leadership of the company, not just the newsroom, the company is are women, the president, the head of our digital sales, the head of our events team, the head of our HR, the head of our audience insights operation. And then on the newsroom side, uh, about half my leadership, they're women. And that was not by design. Like that's because I'm picking the most talented people, but maybe subconsciously it does. It, it is a bit of Maybe there is some design to it. I'm not sure. Um, I do feel like I, I also sort of worked through the period where Polico was considered a boys club. And I think for years we've been trying to reverse that image. And this well predates me being in any sort of management position, much to the company's credit. When I was pregnant, got pregnant in 2012, they gave me five months off, paid, no questions asked. And then we instituted that as a policy last year that men and women—it's a family leave policy. Doesn't matter who you are, three months paid, no questions asked. You do not have to use sick. You do not. And I have men in my newsroom, men who I encourage to take three months paid paternity leave to spend time with their children, and I think these are really important signals to send about what is important, the balance. We ask a lot of people who work at Politico. I know they, you know, they work. I think a hell of a lot more than they get probably get paid for when you portion it out by hour but like it's important also to show that like we get that and things like paid family leave is really important so I don't know if that it's a chicken and egg thing I also think that like I've heard from women in my newsroom who also feel really good that they work at a place where when they choose to have a child you know they'll be able to take off three months and not worry about their salary not worry about eating up all their you know, comp time or vacation time or anything. And they'll just be able to go and spend those three months months with their kid, their child. And I think that builds loyalty also. Like, I, there's probably one of the biggest reasons why I'm still still at Politico was because of how they treated me during my, like when I had my first child, you know, I, my only child. But that built a tremendous amount of loyalty to a company when they're just like, you know, you've worked really hard these past like five years here. And, you know, it just take five months off. And that's, I sort of remember things like that. And I think that's important.
0: Yeah, just take three days off and make sure you get that that story <laughs> yeah, in by your exactly. deadline. Exactly. Yeah. It's gonna be great when these things that that we talk about aren't something like unusual yeah, that yeah, we have yeah. to talk it's about. Yeah. True. Yeah. That you know the the ratio of men and women, the ratio mm-hmm. of different ethnic groups within within yeah. newsrooms, especially newsrooms that are more reflective of the wider audience and the way they're treated because, you know, journalists have, have, if you started at the bottom in a a newspaper, you're probably pretty used to sacrificing time Mm -hmm. and, you know, leave and, and all types of personal things that other people in other careers don't Mm -hmm. ever have to deal with because journalism demands a lot. It does. From your time and your, your interest and your intellect
1: Mm -hmm. and your
0: family. So if you, if you're lucky enough to get a family. So, here we are. It's 2017. We're getting towards the end of the year. What do you see are, are the, the big things that uh, political is going to be focusing on in the next uh, mm-hmm. three, four months?
1: You know, we're, we have these obviously these huge stories, you know, brewing that just are in Washington. You know, tax reform. Can the president get a win legislatively? We've been, you know, very focused on you know accountability stories accountability journalism as we like to call it we had you know a big series of stories this last week or so on Tom Price we broke that story kept up the delivering stories every day that sort of moved the ball and and which was surprising to me I did not actually think that he would be forced to resign I know there's others who said they saw it but I didn't see that happening just because it was so unusual in Washington these days or you know we clearly demonstrated and documented some Questionable behavior, and then there were consequences for that. So, and that was like, hmm. so you know, we're really we're, just that
0: topsy turvy world that we're I in. I know today.
1: it's crazy. And so you know, we're, we've we've done a lot of accountability journalism, uh, and we're gonna. That's been a theme of ours, and we're gonna continue to push on that. We, I mean, I think it's the same opportunity I saw in Europe. There's there's a huge government here. We have two hundred, more than two hundred journalists at Politico, half of whom are cover. The government apparatus here, and those, those are the these are the you know mostly policy journalists who cover sixteen different areas from cybersecurity to defense to health to tech to you know FERC. To, I mean, so we have these journalists who are wired into this government in a way that none of our, my competitors have, and we're going to use that like that is a huge strength to cover the story in Washington. I've always believed that that was our distinctive advantage in a crowded media market. I think the stories of the last week have proven that with beyond a shadow of a doubt what is possible when you invest in good journalism and beyond just sort of the big institutions that get a lot of attention. There's a lot going on in this town and there's a lot of good things that go on. There's a lot of things other things that need to, you know, be reported and and so, you know, we're going to stay on that. We have this, you know, great sort of Big ideas journalism that we produce through our magazine and the agenda, which is our sort of policy platform. And there's just there's just an abundance of things that we're going to be doing.
0: So let me ask you this. I'm going to this is my my final question. It's not quite a softball, but um, (laughs) when you get up in the morning and you drive into work or Mm -hmm. or commute, however you do, ride a horse like uh, (laughs) Secretary Zanke. Yeah. What is it you're thinking about? What is it that you drives you about your job? inspires you you're about. Yeah.
1: I mean, so I'm thinking of two things. One is I'm thinking about like, what, what are the best stories we can tell that day? Like, how can we break through in this environment? What, what are my journalists breaking? Like, what is the most distinctive story we're going to be able to tell that day? So it's a bit of, it's it's like, it's like a 50, 50 thing. Like half of it is journalism. I'm concerned about the stories or driving stories. The other half is just the business itself. What am I doing every day to make sure that we're bringing enough revenue through the door? We're doing stories and we're Operating smartly in this environment, so we can continue to have as strong of a newsroom as possible. So I, I think of both, and I'm, and my head is somewhere in between, and sometimes jumps around.
0: Well, that's probably a good thing. Thank you for coming <laughs> yeah. in, Carrie.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Next time on It's All Journalism.
1: Most lynchings, the FBI doesn't usually investigate um, because they're local things. This was on a military base, so the entire document set was pretty much in the federal, in federal. Government, So, yeah, I mean, you, you put in a document request with the FBI at, uh, through a FOIA and then you wait three months, four months, five months, six months. I mean, I think the FBI's volume is enormous.
0: Alexa Mills joins me in the studio. She's the new editor of the Washington City Paper. We had a great conversation about that new role and two big investigative stories she worked on. One about a decades old lynching case and the other about a slumlord in Washington, D.C. Look for that episode to drop on Thursday, October 19th. Hey, do you know who's cool? Carter Adams is cool. He's the latest person to uh, join our Patreon campaign and donate to our podcast. What? This content is not free. Well, actually, it is technically free. But we do encourage you to show your support and how much you like our podcast by donating to our Patreon campaign. You can find out more about it at our website itsalljournalism.com, follow the link to our Patreon campaign, and choose the level with which you are most comfortable donating to. Not only will that make you cool, and that it will help us uh, keep this podcast going, I will read your name on an upcoming episode. So what are you waiting for? You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of people to produce a podcast. Nicola Grisco edited our audio. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
1: what's working in washington podcast with your host jonathan aberman
0: we share this region's innovative entrepreneurial and creative spirit this podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the dc region it illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy bureaucratic politics only reputation it tries to shed
1: the what's working in washington podcast find it on itunes the podcast one app podcast one.com or at wtop.com search podcast dc The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia. Could render a huge harm to this country.
0: North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA.
1: The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the podcast one app, podcast1.com or at wtop.com. Search podcast
0: DC.